John Kasich was the governor of Ohio and a rival to Donald Trump in the battle for the 2016 GOP nomination. Last week, he became the most prominent Republican yet to openly call for Trump's impeachment, saying that acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney's admission of a quid pro quo between military aid to Ukraine and that country's willingness to investigate matters that would serve the president's political interests was the final straw. But how far is Kasich willing to go to see Trump removed from office? And if that doesn't happen, is he willing to actually challenge the president himself for next year's Republican nomination? We'll find out as we talk to Kasich on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, uh, Kasich really made some waves last week when he called for Trump's impeachment uh, after the Mulvaney presser. And it seems that uh, as we speak, the evidence has only gotten stronger. Kasich was focused on the idea of a quid pro quo. That was his red line. If the president was tying military aid to Ukraine for Ukraine's willingness to investigate his political rivals that was it for him we now have the closed door testimony of bill taylor the u.s charge to affairs in kiev who says that's exactly what was going on that he was told by ambassador sondland that he now realized that the ukrainian officials that he made a mistake when he told Ukrainian officials that a White House meeting with Zelensky was dependent on a public announcement of investigations. In fact, Ambassador Ambassador Sondland said, according to Taylor, everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. And not only did he make explicit uh, that the military assistance was tied to those investigations of his political rivals, he says that Trump according to Sondland, and Sondland says, Taylor says that Sondland told him this, Trump insisted that the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, that he wanted him in a public box, making a public statement about ordering uh, such investigations. It could not have been more explicit. The walls do seem to be closing in their story that there was no quid pro quo. By the way, someone pointed out that the Republican you know, mantra, their political uh, slogan through this process is going to be no quid pro quo in the same way that they said no collusion during the Mueller Russia investigation. Well, that's just not going to hold water anymore, it looks like. No, it doesn't. And uh, of course, this whole idea of putting Zelensky, the new president of uh, Ukraine, in a uh, public box sounds very Trumpian, doesn't yeah. it? And, and, and exactly the way our uh, chief executive thinks. The, the other thing is, you know, we have for months uh, railed on this uh, podcast about the importance of public 
hearings, uh, public testimony from fact witnesses. That didn't really happen um, in the Russia investigation. I think it it is increasingly looking like it's going to happen in this Ukraine um, impeachment inquiry. And I think Bill Taylor is going to be a very powerful witness, not just because uh, the story that he has to tell, but just because of who he is. Uh, Very impressive career foreign service officer, a West Point graduate, served in Vietnam, multiple ambassadorships, was called back into service after the last ambassador, who's also testified in the uh, impeachment inquiry, uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, was summarily uh, recalled to Washington and essentially fired. You know, they brought Taylor in um, for an extra tour of duty to take over the embassy in in Ukraine, and this is what he ends up experiencing. It's an extraordinary story. I think he's going to be a really powerful witness when we finally do get to these public hearings. In the meantime, we just have uh, public uh, skullduggeries for people to listen to. And uh, by the way, before we get to Governor Kasich, I want to uh, remind our listeners for any uh, thoughts, comments, questions, criticisms, whatever, just send it our way at Skullduggery Pod. And on that note, let's get to Governor Kasich. We now have with us John Kasich, former Republican governor of Ohio and the author of the new book, It's Up to Us. Governor, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for letting me be on. Well, so much to talk about. Look, you made a lot of waves the other day when you said after Mulvaney's press conference uh, that that was the final straw for you after Mulvaney uh, basically acknowledged that there had been a quid pro quo on the uh, Ukraine deal. Uh, We now have more testimony today from uh, the uh, ambassador, Taylor, who said basically the same thing, that he was told that Ukraine wouldn't get its aid unless President Zelensky made a public statement saying he was going to go after Burisma, the holding company that the Bidens served on, and investigate the origins of the 2016 election. If Mulvaney's comments were the final straw for you to support an impeachment inquiry, given what's being reported now about what Ambassador Taylor is saying, does that move you even further down the road? Oh, Michael, let's just go where we are now and let's see what this. Look, my my issue now is I believe the Democrats ought to be calling for a vote in the full House on an impeachment inquiry. And that, of course, gives the House greater strength in the courts to get documents to do their investigation. And then, you know, I want to see what they come with articles of impeachment. But, you know, look, what I said was a, a significant deal. It was very, very difficult for me to do. And, you know, I've, I've done what I can do at this point. And whether I do any more or say any more, I don't I just don't know. This was hard because I remember how hard it was to vote for impeachment of Clinton. I mean, it was gut wrenching and voting for impeachment's a big deal. This has to get to the Senate and uh, you know it's going to be in their laps. But let's just kind of see where things go. But I wish the Democrats would not play politics. And I wish they would take a vote in the full House. And the reason why they're not doing it is for political reasons. And that's just terrible. It's not what we should be doing. Governor, yeah, you, you talked about this being a, a very difficult uh, decision. It was difficult when you had to vote 
for Bill Clinton's impeachment. It sounds like it was difficult to make this decision uh, that you've made being in favor of Donald Trump's impeachment. What is it specifically about the president's conduct that indicates to you that he is not fit to serve as president? I, I know you've talked about this quid pro quo. Can you articulate yeah, why? Yeah, sure. I don't, think that a pres- I don't think a president of the United States ought to withhold military aid in exchange for uh, a political investigation by the leader of another country into something that benefits the president. I mean, there have to be some rules and some guardrails. And, uh, and there, you, can't, you can't let this happen, and it creates a precedent for what happens in the future. That is what, uh, what motivated me, because I just I don't think you can do those kinds of things. And I was looking for the quid pro quo, and the chief of staff basically didn't just say these things. He offered a, a window into the way that they think and behave over there. Look, I'm not a scandal guy. Uh, you guys have followed me. I know Ishikov has for many years. I'm a policy guy, not a scandal guy. But, you know, and that's why I don't like to have to get into this, but you have to do what you have to do. So that's what that's what affected me. Presidents can make terrible decisions on foreign policy. You know, they could do all kinds of things that are wrong, but I don't think that's the grounds on which to uh, to impeach. Well, that's a very clear red line that you, you know, believe has been crossed. Why do you think that the vast majority of your colleagues in the Republican Party don't see it that way or at least aren't willing to say publicly and do publicly what you did? Well, I mean, look, the country's tribal. I mean, this is part of the reason why I wrote this book. This book is not about politics. It's about the fact that, uh, you know, people need to live a life a little bigger than themselves. And I happen to think that when you're a member of Congress or any any legislative body, your focus is, should be on how do we lift these people that I serve? How do we how do we bring about some degree of unity? It doesn't mean at times you don't have an argument or, or you know, you you can rub up against people. But by and large, you have a bigger purpose, which is to live a life a little bigger than yourself. And I think that what will happen maybe over time, and you can see an increasing number of them beginning to talk out loud about the fact that they're troubled. But we are very, very tribal. I mean, people are one of the things I argue in the book is you've got to get out of your your silo. You've got to listen to what other people have to say. And, and it's, it's really up to us to change the, uh, the dialogue, and it's up to us to, uh, to end this tribalism, which I think is, uh, you know, it's toxic for our country. Governor, a couple of questions here. I mean, last week you said after Mulvaney uh, you thought that the president should be impeached. If you had your old House seat back, you would vote for impeachment if you were in the Senate. Would you vote for removal based on the evidence Again, you asked me that, that has I, already not, been presented? I'm not even out of the House yet. Slow down, Michael. <laughs> right. I just elevated you. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know that that's an elevation. I was governor. Why would I ever want to go back into the House of the Senate? <laughs> okay. I mean, it was hard for me to go back there. I broke out into a cold sweat reimagining my time, you know, in the House. Now, I had a great time when I was there. It was a different time. It was where, you know, people could get along. I was chairman of the budget committee when we that we put together the plan to balance the budget. People, you know, think that's a fantasy, but it actually happened. It was then when I was working with Ron Dellums uh, on military reform, a Democrat, very liberal. It was just a different time. And but I could see I could see the partisanship rising. And, uh, you know, I got out at the right time. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, 
being a change agent, which is what I was, I kept looking out saying, who are those guys, you know, into the way up on the horizon. <laughs> I knew they were coming to get me at some point. If you know what I mean, if you understand popular culture and Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but you guys are so focused <laughs> on politics, you probably don't get out of your silo. We're, we are going to get well, to your book in, in just a couple of minutes and get out of, get out of our sure. silos uh, for a little bit here. But you did, at the beginning of this uh, conversation, you raised the question of whether there was more that you would do or could do. And I guess the question is, if this is such an important issue, I mean, you know, you've come to the conclusion that the president, you know, may not be fit to serve in office, then should you not and are you talking to your Republican uh, friends, Republicans in the Senate and trying to not really persuade no, them? Not really. I don't I don't have. Uh, look, I, I think the best way to be an example for somebody is not what you say, but what you do. And no, I'm not like, you know, on some shuttle or, you know, on some I, I just don't engage in that, to be mm -hmm. honest with mm -hmm. you. Maybe I should. Maybe I should have more relationships there. Uh, you know, and I run into people when I happen to be in Washington. Everybody's kind and nice. But, you know, I don't think they, they know the way I think. And look, I mean, I can go to the convention in my own state. I didn't vote for the guy. Everybody knows that. And I think some people thought, well, you know, it was he was. You know, he, he, he was mad he didn't win. It had nothing to do with it. It had to do with exactly what I wrote about in my last book. I don't believe that leaders should divide. I think they should unite. And I have not engaged in personal attacks on the president. But, you know, most of the things that I have been really interested in was this. But before that, it was health. I don't like all the provisions of Obamacare, but I didn't like the idea that Republicans were going to repeal it without any replacement which would have hurt 20 million Americans. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of post-partisan now, you know, in, in many ways. I'm still a Republican. I'm a conservative. But instead of wearing red or, you know, thinking about wearing blue, when people think about wearing blue, we ought to be wearing red, white, and blue is the way we ought to be operating. And, uh, you know, so I, I just not like calling around and lying. It just doesn't work that way. You know, the Senate's a club. They'll, they'll figure it out. If they ask me, I'll tell them, you know, what I'm thinking. But I think I've been pretty clear and I think one of the things that happened as a result of what I've had to say about impeachment is that I think I've been very clear in terms of the case. I mean, if you don't think it's important to stop a president from withholding foreign aid, particularly to a country that has the Russians inside of it and threatening their very uh, independence, and you think it's proper for an American president to withhold military aid until they do what he wants on the political front, I can't help you. If you think that's OK, you know, I got to accept it. I mean, I, I don't like it, but you know, I'm not going to have a war with you. But laying it out and being clear about it, I think is um, I, I hope has been helpful to the public debate. Governor, the filing deadline for the New Hampshire primary is November 15th, just a few weeks away. If you feel as strongly as you do, why don't you run for president? Well, because I can't win right now. I mean, I'm not going to run for something I can't win. I mean, still, Republicans are 80 plus percent. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, Michael, you know, having run in this last uh, election and 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 getting through all the hurdles and um, and really being disappointed, being disappointed after I left New Hampshire and beat everybody, which no one thought I would do and not getting a bump or the media attention that would have given me some power in the south and then coming north, I did increasingly better. 
I know what it takes. I know how hard it is to raise money. People don't want people by and large do not want to create a winner. They just want to be with a winner. And so I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense for me to have to take a Greyhound bus from Columbus, Ohio to uh, to New Hampshire. It, it's just not there at this point. And I don't know what the future is going to bring. But right now, well, you say at this point, I mean, the evidence does seem well, to be building, you know, every day. As I said, we even had new testimony just today from Ambassador Taylor that supports the idea of exactly what you Michael, say is no the red line that the there. quid no, pro quo. There's no political opening. There is just no opening right now. There just isn't. You may think there is, but it's, then you should run. <laughs> God forbid. Um, Don't bad yeah, me about uh, what the politics are. It's my life. It's my friends. It's my family. It's my supporters. And, you know, I don't necessarily in the 21st century have to hold public office to be able to have a voice. I think I proved that last week. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the thing that I can to be as positive as I can, realizing I'm a hypocrite. I'm, I'll be number one in the country. But, you know, I'll do what I have to do to stay out there and keep a good voice out there. But at the end of the day, that's what I do in the future is up to the uh, up to the big guy. And the big guys, I don't uh, you know, the big guys like, you know, not here. He's our creator. Right. Your state went uh, pretty strongly for Trump last time, I think, by eight points or so. What's your sense of where Ohioans are right now about the president? Can he, if he survives this, will he carry Ohio again? Give us well, what happened the reading. last time is, look, we actually, you know, we actually had a, a big turnaround in Ohio. You know, we went from budget deficits to surpluses from, you know, hundreds of thousands of job losses to, you know, 400,000 job gains. And people had health care. I expanded Medicaid. Uh, we dealt with the issue of race. I mean, there wasn't any reason for people to want to change the sauce. And so where is that now? I think Ohio's still doing better. And I think that if Democrats are going to win, they're going to have to talk about the the, uh, the kitchen table issues, health care and the enormous costs of them and how we're going to get family health care and make it affordable. We got to talk about, you know, the, how the kids are going to go to school. They got a job. We got AI. We got all this technology coming. How are people going to survive in their jobs? This is the stuff that would that would move people in our state. Spending a lot of time talking about impeachment or whatever, I I just don't think works. Well, let me let me. It's an issue. Yeah, let me pick up on that, Governor. Because I want to and I want to talk about your book for a second here. I don't believe it. <laughs> Isikoff wasn't going to bring it up, but you know what. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think I it's important. It at the top. Come on. <laughs> All right. So your your book is is in part about why people should be, you know, less preoccupied with the the circus in Washington and and a lot of this stuff that yeah. we're frankly talking about uh, right now, and more willing to improve the communities where they live, uh, more empathy, uh, less less division. No, um, no, no. Let me let me tell you this. This is a handbook for people getting their power back. Yeah. And let me also tell you. For guys that have studied Washington, I, I assume that you know that all change, major change, social and political, comes from the bottom up. It doesn't come from the top down. And so we, you know, we focus all this stuff about Donald Trump. Okay, I'm not telling you it is important. It's critically important. But in the meantime, what are you doing? What yeah. are you doing to? And you talk about polarization. You talk about people can't get along. You talk about the fact that you know these guys don't have and women don't have any guts and all that kind of stuff. Well. What are you doing? 
You know, what are you doing to bring about change in big ways and in small ways? Because the, the, the heartbeat of America is not to who the heck is in Washington. I'm sorry, guys, it isn't. Yeah. The heartbeat of our country is in the streets. It's in the neighborhoods. It's in our homes. That's the heartbeat of America. And I tell you, people, this is resonating with people now. Before, people thought it was boring. And now I'm finding people like this message that they have power, they can change the world, and just don't sit around and wring your hands and fight at the Thanksgiving table over whether you like Trump or whether you don't. There you go. Yeah. Well, you're talking about you're talking about the sort of small, almost radical acts of of compassion and kind of good works and decency and and that's laudable. That's wonderful. I guess I guess the question is, give us a really hard nosed, uh, honest assessment of what we're up against here. These all these structural forces that that have led to polarization, uh, political and and you know media culture that's about you know, arguing all the time. I mean, isn't this a kind of a Sisyphean struggle? Do you really see that uh, path? No, I don't think so at all. Look, I mean, civil rights took how many years, Ishikoff? How many years did it take to pass civil rights laws? (laughs) About a century. Decades and decades. (laughs) And the reason it happened was not because anybody in Washington wanted to pass it. I mean, some did at the end. But when Martin Luther King went to see JFK, I mean, King left, he was bitterly disappointed. It came about because people decided that the change was essential and that fairness and justice mattered. Or if you think about women's suffrage, look how long it took for women to get the right to vote. The men didn't want to give it to them. And then our African-American women didn't get it until long after that because of the work of people like Fannie, Fannie Lou Hamer. Or if you think about ending the Vietnam War, you know, that, that happened because of the I'll give you another one. The changes in gun laws in Florida came about because of the Parkland students. That's why it happened. They didn't want to do any gun control changes. And then if you think about if you think about global environmentalism, it started with a 15 year old girl who stood outside the parliament in Sweden and said, protect the earth. I mean, guys, you're missing it. And when people say you've got all this polarization, people say, what, am, what should we do about it? I said, well, what are you doing about it? Mm-hmm. What are you doing when you're talking to people? You know, and I'll give you another one. You know, this whole when we have a crisis, we have an emergency. We get these guys on boats. They get in the water. They pull people off off the roof of their house. They don't say, well, who'd you vote for? Or if you're working in a food bank because, you know, there are people in your community who are hungry. You know, it brings you together. Don't you see that the, that the demand, the demand for civility doesn't come from the top down. It comes from us in the neighborhood to tell a politician, stop it, or I'm going to work to defeat you. That's, that's, but we that's have what a, I got to say. We have a political culture that does, you know, encourage and still this polarization that in many ways rewards it. And given the way yeah. the structure of the media is today, um, which you're now a part of as a CNN commentator. Yeah. You know, I, how do we get beyond that? Well, because it's up to me. I mean, I'm on CNN. OK, it's my job to be fair. So I'm doing an interview today and I'm telling you about Trump being impeached. At the same time, I'm telling you the Democrats need to have a vote and they're playing too much politics. Just be fair. And, you know, remember, at the end of the day, it's on you what your life was. I mean, when we celebrate some of the great journalists, you know, throughout history, they're not people. They're, they're people who 
who just had character. They're people that that really figured out how to just tell the truth, how to not shade things to them. We're all biased. We know that. But it's up to all of us. And then it's up to the people to get out of their goddamn silo and just keep absorbing everything that you agree with. Start thinking about somebody else. And by the way, how about the idea that we ought to walk in somebody else's shoes? And how about the idea that everybody's made in the image of our creator and they deserve respect? I think the story about this guy, if it's true, spraying bear spray on a bunch of people who were protesting Trump. I mean, it's got to stop. And we stop it. We have to stop it. Can you share with us and our listeners uh, one or two examples of seeing people getting out of their silos and walking in other people's shoes? Well, what, what I, yeah, I mean, if I were to, to think about that, I don't, I, I have encouraged people to get out of their silos, but I, I don't have any vivid examples of where a person sort of changed their mind. I, I can give you, I'll give you one that affects me personally. I was having a debate about free speech on college campuses. And I was saying, well, you know, I thought it was okay for, uh, for a university president to use judgment and keep some people off the campus if you know, they had a hate speech or whatever. So I then talked to uh, Gordon Gee, who's the president of WVU and was the president of Ohio State and many other schools. And he said, John, I don't agree with you. Let it get it out there. Get the free speech out there. And I changed my mind completely. I went 180 degrees the other way because I thought, you know what? He's right about that. Then I was reading the op-ed that was written uh, and the speech that Zuckerberg gave about how he should run Facebook. You know, and I'm sort of, okay. what do I think about that? How do we do that for people, by the way, throughout history who have might have had a strong position on civil rights who all of a sudden changed their minds? Or how about with gun control? You've got people now beginning to say, this is crazy. You know, these are people that said, you know, we don't change anything who are now saying, you know what? There's change that's reasonable. So that's kind of the way I, I look at it. Let's and, take gun control yeah. for, for a moment. Yeah. Are there gun control proposals that you now support that you couldn't or didn't when you were in the House? Well, remember, I supported the assault weapons camp. I mean, I've been on all sides of this issue. And then when I ran for governor, uh, the Democrat uh, got endorsed by the NRA. But, you know, they went all over the state and tried to beat me, but they didn't. And, uh, you know, I believe in the Second Amendment. But if you take the red flag laws, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. With the red flag laws, if you know somebody who's unstable that could harm themselves or others, you go to court, you present your case, and that person can lose their gun until until they're stabilized. So there was a video the other day, I hope you saw it about this teacher who was able to take a, a, a shotgun out of the hands of a student who was there to shoot himself. Now, that kid should never have had that gun, right? And so the red flag laws make a lot of sense. You know why I couldn't pass it when I was governor? Because I couldn't get 5,000 people to show up on the steps of the state house. Now, sometimes change comes from just showing up, just showing up. So anyway, I think reasonable change in those laws is doable. And I think that it's inevitable that this is going to happen because people demand it. You can't just stand up at a town hall meeting anymore and say, well, you know, Second Amendment. It won't sell any more than you can be a climate science denier. It doesn't work. 
Governor, just getting back to politics for a second, you've all but said that uh, Donald Trump, unless he's, I guess, unless he's uh, impeached and, and removed uh, from office, but he will be the Republican nominee in in uh, in 2020. I assume you will not vote for Donald Trump. Right. Is that, is that a, said is I'm that a fair assumption? Okay, you've already said that. Yeah, uh, but I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, what that doesn't vote. leave a lot of choices. Uh, it's either you don't vote you write in a candidate or you vote for the Democrat. Yeah, I might. I wrote in McCain the last time. I might write Ishikoff in, although the way this interview's going, he's not talking about my book. I'm, he's going down a little. Maybe you should write in Clydeman, because I actually have asked about your book. Well, you know what? We'll see yeah. who is the star of this great World Series that's coming up. Maybe I'll write in, I don't know, Scherzer. A- Anthony Rendon. Or maybe I'll write. Maybe hey, maybe I'll write in. What's it, Pierre? Um, what? Delecto. Uh, Delecto. 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 Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll write. Yeah. In. Do you have Do you have a secret uh, Twitter account? Uh, by the way, Governor. I, I do not. But I'm thinking I should get one. <laughs> okay. come up yeah. with a cool hey, name. Get, like a, get a better alias, and then yeah. But is voting for a the Democratic candidate a possibility? I'm going to just say this. I'm going to support. Uh, whoever I think can do the best job of helping our country. And I don't know what that's going to mean. Uh, is it possible? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't right now. I, I just don't know. Is it impossible? I voted for Democrats in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Does it mean I'm going to vote for one now? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, guys. I'm sorry. And you know what? Maybe I won't tell you what I do anyway, because voting is secret, <laughs> in case you didn't know that. <laughs> Can Elizabeth Warren carry Ohio? Uh, I don't think so. Too radical, you know. So you I think mean, you Trump would beat her? In, you tell Trump would beat her worker, in Ohio. You tell a blue collar worker in Youngstown who has health insurance that you're going to take it away and give them a great government plan. What do you think they're going to say? And this attack on no. you know wealth and all that other stuff is, I don't, I don't think so. But look, I. I all I want is somebody that can help bring this country together again. And I just I can't tell you at this point. I can't assess it. I don't know what's good. Guys, we don't know what's going to happen in the next hour, let alone what's going to happen in the next year. <laughs> I'm afraid to know. So, I'm afraid to look to see what's happened while we were on this uh, interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So last question. Is there any scenario over the next few weeks that could change your mind about running for president? Well, I, I, is there any scenario? Yeah. How about okay? How about this? How about if Donald Trump says, "You know what? I'm going to drop out only on the condition that John Kasich be the nominee." <laughs> Want to take odds on that? <laughs> I think okay. he just might. Yeah, have t- you heard it here first on Skullduggery, folks. <laughs> I'm, check, I'm checking. I'm hey, checking. Kasich opens the door to running for president. It's up, it's up. It's up to us. Ten little ways we can bring about big change. It's a handbook for getting your power back. I'm I'm done with this. This is turning into like, you know, you guys are just you're driving me into the ground. I've had enough. I'm out of energy. Goodbye. That, that's what we do on this podcast. Right. That's our yeah, forte. All right. Well, congratulations on uh, on the book. Thank you. See you guys. All right. Take Bye. care. All right. Bye. Thank you. Take care. 
Thanks to former Ohio Governor John Kasich for joining us on this bonus episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. We'll talk to you soon.